This is an ABC podcast. From all in this together to at each other's throats. That seems to be the journey (laughs) that Australia has undertaken uh, in the story of COVID-19, I'm afraid. And I say this now from the middle, well, I say the middle, it's probably towards the beginning, isn't it, of Mm, a lockdown that has gripped uh, Greater Sydney, has ventured through most states around Australia and winds its way back to this point. We'll see where exactly this goes, but a lot of things are beginning to become clear on the minefield, or are they? Well, we'll muddy the waters, no doubt. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. I foreshadow the kind of territory we're walking into today. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Scott, this is, a I feel like, a show that we might have managed to delude ourselves we would never do again, but... In some ways, we've absolutely had to do, probably for a while, actually. Yeah, true. Uh, And in fact, you know, the whole sort of grey cloud silver linings thing. Yeah. One of the really nice things about having a prolonged pandemic (laughs) is that that topics that we broached notionally or the beginnings of last year, we find ourselves having to return to this year uh, and are forced in a position where we need to do part twos, part threes Mm. of things that maybe we didn't get quite to the bottom of last time. Yeah, you have to bite the cherry multiple times until you might actually get it half right. It's a, it's a dream for people who think about public life. It's mm. a nightmare for everyone else, but, you know, mm. silver linings. Uh, look, it, it, is, it is funny. About 14 months ago, we did a show. I'm not sure, sure if you remember. We did it with the political theorist Jan Werner Müller from Princeton University. We did a show about whether uh, the COVID-19 pandemic was bringing out the worst in democratic politics. Almost our entire focus at that stage was on international politics and the extent to which some of the world's advanced democracies were being emboldened, if you like, or having their latent tendencies towards technocracy, towards despotism and populism fanned by the conditions uh, of the pandemic. In, In other words, the very fact that so much power had to be centralized in the hands of the executive branches of these governments. And so much reliance was being placed on the expertise of experts. Uh, To what extent was that minimizing, was that placing under jeopardy some of the other branches, roles of government bodies, uh, non-executive government branches? And to what extent was this going to end up, was the pandemic going to end up being a field day for uh, for would-be technocrats, uh, 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 technopopulists, or despots. It, it's, it's funny, you know, Willie, just thinking back 14 months ago, we spoke fairly glowingly at the time about Australia's response to the pandemic. And I don't think we were premature or wrong in doing so. Mm. Uh, the things that, some of the things that I think we most often bemoan about our national life ended up coming in really, really handy in those early days of the pandemic. The first one was the willingness of the federal government to slam international borders shut. Mm. Uh, And that, by all accounts, was vital in minimizing community transmission in this country. But then the other thing, and you know, how many years have we talked about the problems posed by federalism? 
the, the, the dissolution of power across federal and state bounds and the blame game, the blame shifting that often takes place. And yet, funnily enough, it was the states that were absolutely vital in reading the situations on the ground, in closing state borders, in, uh, in shepherding their various populations through the rolling series of public health emergencies. And again, by all accounts, doing a really, really impressive job mm. in not just uh, minimizing uh, um, interstate movement, but also in placing a largely acquiescent population into lockdown. And so when, when you sort of said tongue-in-cheek that, you know, we're all in this together, it, it was really impressive, I think. No, no, that wasn't tongue-in-cheek. Oh, no, no, I was, sorry. I was trying to, the, to describe what I think the journey was. Like, you know... Uh, okay, yes. I was going to say a year ago, probably a bit more than a year ago. So mm. March, April last year, I think there genuinely was a warm feeling of solidarity across parties, across levels of government. I think that's disappeared. And I think... Well, it's obviously disappeared. Um... But I, I don't. I don't want to confine this to governmental analysis here. No, no, of course not. Because I, I'm interested also in the attitudes of people in Australia to a whole lot of things. Um, you know, our attitudes to to the vaccine rollout, for example, where which I think deserves um, its fair whack of criticism. But I think some of the criticism is a bit overstated, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably right. I can detail that if you really want to, although that's not really the focus of the show. But the reason I raise it is you put that in alongside the reaction to any lockdowns that we've seen this year. So the Victorian lockdown and the way that the federal government responded to that. And I think a lot of Victorians responded to that with a kind of exasperation um, and anger at the Victorian government, which I thought was interesting because it was like we got our anger exactly wrong with respect to the Victorian government. We, there wasn't, they got away with a lot last year with that second so wave. When, when you say we and our, are you talking about Victorians? Uh, I'm, yeah, I think so. And I'm okay. talking about everybody actually, because I think this was a trend that was observable across different um, okay, sure. kinds of people. So if you look at last year, that second wave was almost entirely the fault of the Victorian government. Mm-hmm. It was terrible hotel quarantine management and then it was abysmal contact tracing that yeah. allowed this thing to get out and out of control to such an extent that it was just on fire, right? Mm. Then they handled bringing it back under control magnificently but it, that failure of the Victorian government I think is probably the greatest failure of any government in the pandemic so far in Australia, right? But they kind of got away with that. <laughs> Victorians, by and large, didn't seem to blame them. And yet in this second lockdown that they – or that it was the fourth, I suppose – the two-week lockdown that they recently had, what I found interesting was that even though it originated in South Australia and was probably a byproduct of the failure of federal government policy in hotel quarantine especially, um, the Victorian government got treated as though they were incompetent and – I felt a shift. I felt like there was more blame for the Victorian government. It was like we blamed the Victorian government when we shouldn't and we exonerated them when we shouldn't. It was a very mm, strange situation. Mm, interesting. And I think that speaks to a broader evolution, what, I, what you might call the the spiritual evolution of, of our experience <laughs> with COVID-19. And by that, what I mean is that the evolution of, of our internal life towards the pandemic and our expectations. And then what you saw was, I think, were incredibly frustrating 
discussion, which was just logically silly about why is it always Melbourne when really you were mm. talking about two major outbreaks. So you're trying to generalise from a data set of two, which is yeah. just a stupid thing to do. And it was, it commits the logical fallacy of affirming the consequent, right? So um, this idea that my cat has four legs, this has four legs, therefore it's a cat. It doesn't work that mm. way. It was, it was mm. poor reasoning right from the moment. But I think it triggered a kind of hubris elsewhere that, well, geez, this is a Melbourneian thing. And then suddenly we get this situation in Sydney which bears that out in a really brutal way. And then what I think becomes interesting is the response then. So what I'm detecting, and we, we need to declare that neither of us is in Sydney, Mm. But Sydney being what it is, we have a lot of contacts there. We have a lot of friends there. I certainly do. Um, I know you like to pretend you don't have any friends at all, Scott, but I'm I sure don't. you have friends. I don't. There. there are a couple of people I know. I yeah, right. you know, try so, to reach out to them every year or so. Yeah, right. and, well, <laughs> and we work in media, which is very Sydney-based, right? So you're constantly right. meshed in the life of Sydney, right? And the thing I've detected in Sydney media uh, um, and amongst the Sydney population is a kind of desperate anger and impatience that they're in this situation, almost a, a sense of being affronted that the virus dare do this and that sort of gold standard Gladys has kind of, that the, the halo has slipped a bit there, that this thing, this, this mythology that had been offered that New South Wales was just different and differently better than everyone else in the way they handled this has kind of been shown up to be at the very least overstated and probably more accurate, just flat wrong. That circumstance mm. has a lot to do with this and a lot of this is fluky and beyond the control of governments. And there are good responses and bad responses and mostly I would say Australian responses have been good, but that it's not as simple as just you're good at this and you're bad at this, right? So what I'm interested in here is that is what that sort of impatience and sense of being affronted tells us. And I would posit a couple of things. One is that part of this is just natural. I think Melbournians probably went through it last year in their wave where it was like, well, the first couple of weeks you're fighting it and then eventually you submit to it and it actually becomes mm. easier once you submit to it rather than trying mm. to fight it every day. And that's probably just a natural process that everyone will go through. But the other thing is I wonder if it stems from a sense that has pervaded Australia of entitlement that we are beyond this. 2020 is over. The pandemic's meant to be over. And that we had almost imagined ourselves as being beyond the vicissitudes of a pandemic, which we need mm. to remember is still going on. <laughs> and that what pandemics do is they throw things at you that you cannot contain. You can handle them better or worse, but you cannot really contain them. Viruses will evolve vaccines that come online, new things will be discovered about their efficacy. That means they're not as effective for as long as you might have thought. We've recently just discovered that with the Pfizer vaccine, um, which is, you know, the vaccine that we're now going to rely on most. We've jettisoned more or less the AstraZeneca vaccine because we assumed a situation of no COVID and now we have an outbreak and we're revisiting that advice. Um, and, but that raises an obvious question about, well, if we'd put our faith in that vaccine to begin with, might this have been a different situation? All of these sorts of things, I think they stem from a kind of sense of entitlement as to what that we are somehow in charge of this pandemic. And that reminder, I think, has been really fascinating. I think you can see that expressed in populations, but also in governments, the way they talk, the way they respond to these sorts of things. And frankly, the partisanship that took over at least 
until the Sydney outbreak had to recalibrate some of those partisan pieties. Mm. Look, I, I'm, I really like this. I mean, I'm always going to love thinking about the conditions in which we find ourselves, conditions of, or pandemic conditions in terms of spiritual malaises. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm always going to find that interesting. Um, and I think entitlement is a really useful frame, but I think entitlement is something that you have to get to by seeing, if you like, the vicious rivulets that lead into it. Um, I, I would say, for instance, to begin with, and, and I guess here, one of the things that deeply informs me is the conviction that any state of emergency in which a political community finds itself, that tends to exacerbate the latent tendencies already existing in that political mm. community. It's very, very yeah. rare for a state of emergency to simply bring about something utterly new. You don't become uh, a new in, person just because... You don't become a new person. In, in, instead, those latent tendencies are simply going to come to the fore and are going to come to the fore in, well, maybe a belated way but in a way that's probably going to be more pronounced than it was before, than it would have been otherwise. And I think one of the things that we've seen, um, I, I often bring up the problem or the vice of contempt, um, because I really do think it is all pervasive. Uh, in, in a lovely recent book, Zadie Smith, a little book of essays called Intimations, uh, she said that, um, that the real pandemic that's sweeping over the world is not COVID-19 at all, but another C. Uh, COVID-19 is just the bearer of it, and that's the, the virus of contempt. And I think that's, that's, I mean, it's metaphorical and hyperbolic, obviously, but I think there's also something there because one of the things that contempt does is it doesn't just enlist a moral gulf between you and who you think are your moral inferiors. But it also has the wonderful added benefit, and I mean added in the vicious way, has the wonderful added benefit of making oneself feel morally superior to those that one then holds with a degree of ridicule uh, um, or, or contempt. In other words, what the, the wonderful role that Victoria played for the better part of the last 18 months has been uh, uh, to play the role of, if you like, the national or political punching bag or the object of common ridicule. That's the state that simply can't get their act together. Mm. That's the state uh, that, uh, that leaps into lockdown at a moment's notice. Whereas, in fact, the two states that have tended to leap into lockdown are the state where I am, Queensland, and the state where our guest is, Western Australia. Those are the states that I think, uh, I, I don't want to sort of put too fine a point on this, but it seems to me that Western Australia and Queensland live in conditions of abject political terror. They simply don't want what is taking place in New South Wales now or what's taking place in Victoria in the past to take place within these states. So um, states of zero risk, effectively. States of zero risk. In other words, there's no ambition. There's simply fear. Um, and, and look, I'm, I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with that. There's, there's something, there's a kind of blessedness about being spared these conditions of, of extended, prolonged lockdown of rampant community transmission. Um, but it does lead to, it does, I think, tend towards a certain exceptionalism, uh, um, a kind of pulling away from the fabric of the national body. But see, here's where I think the way that New South Wales in particular and the federal government, which strikes me as a very New South Wales federal government. It's a very Sydney-centric uh, federal government. Well, what, 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 can I just interpose on that? Yeah, I, please. I think it's because it's a Sydney-centric Liberal Party in the way that yeah, it used yeah, to be right. a Melbourne-centric Liberal Party. So yeah. you wonder when that, like Howard becomes the hinge figure and you go from the party of Menzies and Holt and Fraser 
to the party of Howard and Abbott and Turnbull and Morrison. And so I think there's been that that shift. I think it's actually an interesting story of the party. Yes, it is. Um, as right. much as it, which is not even a criticism, so much as just a, an observation as to the geographic centre of gravity that mm. that the party's undergone. But anyway, go on. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that rather than Victoria providing us the most reliable, the most interesting, the most productive, the most useful data available to other states about what to do when there is seemingly uncontrolled community transmission, about how wide you have to spread the net in order to catch the proper contacts, how to communicate with, uh, with communities for whom English isn't their first language, uh, and how quickly to leap into lockdown. All of the lessons were there to be learned if, if you like, other states had eyes to see. But instead, there was that overarching, I, I, I think a condition of kind of interstate or internecine contempt, mostly directed from New South Wales towards Victoria, but then there was also a kind of unwillingness to learn the lesson and uh, a kind of making fun of this overpreparedness to leap into lockdown. So I think this sort of, this this interstate sort of contempt from state to state, but then also from states to federal governments and from federal governments to other states, I think that's been one of the really, really big problems. But I think the other thing that that's then fueled, Waleed, is so when when you say that there's a kind of that there's a sense of entitlement why is this still happening to us i think one of the other problems is that the only conditions in which a central government or a state government can claim certain emergency powers which the state and federal governments have done is when there's an overarching condition of massive public trust So certain things that in ordinary times would have been deemed unconscionable, unnecessary, draconian, these are things that are going to be permitted, that are going to be acquiesced to on the condition that this is a temporary measure and this is necessary to guard the health, the well-being of the social body. Mm. For, For that condition of public trust to be guarded, it means that there need to be these constant votive reaffirmations of trust. Uh, between governments and their people. And I think here, when you have states ridiculing other states, when you have states counter-messaging the messages of the federal government, when you have the federal government over-promising, it seems to me in the interests of kind of laying out a kind of announceable, over-promising a vaccine rollout and then massively under-delivering. These are all the things. And, 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 and then you have certain problems which I don't think the federal government could have foreseen uh, about um, uh, certain problems or health risks that attended to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, these, these are all the sorts of things that undermine conditions of public trust. And when that happens, it means that the constant appeals to this is just for a short time This is something we're all in together, but it's going to pass. We need to do this in order to protect the most vulnerable or in in order to stop the risk of community transmission. All of those appeals to public faith in these centralized powers, these then become muddied. And I think what we then have is a condition of democratic exhaustion. And so when when you talk about entitlement, I think that's right. But I think that entitlement then comes out of a condition of this should have been over by now. Why is it not over 
now. We should have had life return to pretty much normal. Why hasn't the government done what it said it was going to do? I think the problem from the beginning is the lack of proper uh, signals of the kind of political humility that needs to exist in the face of something like a pandemic. Mm. And that the acknowledgement of, of humility, of the acknowledge of we're doing everything we can to control this, but ultimately things are out of our control. I think those are the things that cultivate conditions of public trust. And as soon as you have those conditions sullied uh, or mucked up by broken promises or conflicting messages or interstate internecine warfare, uh, public warfare, then I think you have a whole lot of bitching and griping, which then takes its ultimate spiritual form, I think you're right, in the form of entitlement. Yeah, so there's a couple of things I'd say to embellish that. I, I, I can't really find fault with it. I think I agree with everything you just said. But the, the, <laughs> the first thing is I just want to take a detour to say the idea that the lesson to learn from Melbourne is that that is a government that goes quickly into lockdown yeah. is one of the silliest lessons that you <laughs> I, I could possibly right. derive because actually Melbourne's problem, probably on two occasions, but definitely on the, the occasion of that big wave last year, was that it didn't go into lockdown anywhere near quickly enough. That's the mistake they made among many. Their, their lockdown strategy hasn't been to go straight into lockdown. It's been to wait a while till it gets too big, then go into lockdown and have an elongated lockdown. That's mm. what they did. Melbourne went, what were the daily case numbers when Melbourne went into lockdown? Some 70 something or a hundred and something? Yeah. yeah, that's right. So this was not a get one case and go into lockdown government. And it's just, I, it, I'm But that's to, how it was being criticized. Yeah. And my problem with that is not a problem with, you know, please don't criticize the Victorian government, how precious. So I don't, I'm all for criticizing the Victorian government. But don't make stupid criticisms that therefore misguide you when it's your turn, right? Mm. And that's – I just – anyway, I'm trying to contain my frustration, so I'll move on from that. The point, but that is, all, that, that is also precisely the, what we've seen in New South Wales. Um, a, going too because late. Be, going yeah. too late uh, and going too late on the back of repeated reaffirmations of why we are better than Melbourne yeah. and why we won't make the mistakes that Melbourne has made, which is in fact well, – whereas in fact what the New South Wales government has done is made precisely the mistakes yeah. that Melbourne it's made. It's actually which they frightening the from. extent to which – Melbourneian history is repeating in Sydney. That's um, right. It's really interesting to look at. But, okay, so there's that. The point that you make I think is really interesting about um, when we admit that this is beyond our control and we're going to do our best, actually we do come together and that's what you saw early. The crowing about our success, which was like, yes, we did very well, but it led us to a place, I think, where it became difficult then for accept, to accept the conditions of our continued success. Mm. And that's a fascinating situation to be in. And that's before we even get to the complexities of the vaccine rollout, which we may even not go into in this show. I don't know. It depends how it plays out. But our anger at the way the vaccine rollout has been sputtering, I think, is revealing. Because although, as I've said, there are criticisms to be made, it, there are criticisms that don't need to be made, actually. Like there, there's an assumption that our rollout should have been something that I don't think was ever really realisable, given yeah, our unique right. situation of being a country that achieved elimination. Like we keep comparing ourselves to the UK and the US, where the ethical and policy decisions were much simpler because you had half a million deaths in the US case or 130,000 deaths in the UK's case. And so your decisions about which vaccines to use, et cetera, were just much, much easier. Now, that doesn't absolve everything that's happened in the federal government's rollout, far from it. But 
we, it's like we don't even appreciate the difference in context. And that, I think, comes to this idea, but hang on, we're the best. We said we're the best. Mm. We, we told ourselves we're the best. And when you tell yourselves that and you don't acknowledge, you don't have the sufficient humility to acknowledge the extent to which you had natural advantages or you got a bit lucky, then I think you end up in this situation where you become so frustrated and so entitled because you thought you were the best. It's a fascinating spiritual journey, as I say. It is. It is. And, and, and look, now that you bring it up, just incidentally, that failure to acknowledge the extent that we were just lucky and that certain states are just lucky and that maybe the fact that it took this long for New South Wales to have to go into lockdown was just lucky given the nature of the pandemic. That is then the flip side, the failure to acknowledge luck is the thing that accompanies the preparedness to begin pointing blame. Um, And that blame could be ethno-national, in other words, at other nations, or that blame could be uh, internal, cultural, uh, at particular people groups. And in in, in either case, it's just awful. And uh, what happens with that is that you end up torturing yourself because you're so angry at the situation rather than trying to deal with what is a bad situation Mm. where bad things will happen. Well said. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. You can also catch the show as a podcast. You can listen anytime you like on the ABC Listen app. You can also follow The Minefield as a podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Scott, repeat business from a guest. Repeat business. This is now the second time we've done this this and year, which actually says something about the calibre of the guests that we've had. Or the, the circularity too. of the topics that we or keep the discussing. Of the topics, that's right. I've also noticed, like, it's been a couple of times now, guests with short gaps, short intervals. It's like they're, they're the Pfizer vaccine rather than the AstraZeneca vaccine. <laughs> That's a lovely analogy. Uh, Our guest, you might have remembered him when we talked to him two months ago, a little bit less than two months ago. Marco Rizzi is senior lecturer in the law school of the University of Western Australia. Uh, The last time we joined Marco was in May, I think. We were talking about the ethics of vaccine incentives. Marco, thank you so much for being willing to join us back on the minefield. Thank you for having me again. Um, so, so look, Walid and I have brought up a whole lot of things, and I'm, I'm suspecting that you're less comfortable about wandering into the thicket of the spiritual malaise that may well be underlying uh, so many of the responses uh, to vaccine rollout and the prolonging of the pandemic itself. But let's just take a step back to, I think, what was a subdominant theme in a lot of what Walid and I just discussed, and that is the claiming of executive powers, on the part of both federal and state government. You, you, you could say, and I think it would be right to say, that a good deal of Australia's success to date has been due to the centralizing of powers with the executive branch, the ability to make certain decisions and to make those decisions unilaterally, ideally, of course, in concert with state leaders. Uh, this is all through the, through the calling of the national cabinet. But at the same time, there are also things that the hoarding of executive power have maybe left us in not so great a position with. For instance, we are not able to interrogate some of the government's promises, many of the forms of public accountability, which is conducive to public trust. These are also things that have gone by the wayside. What's your reading about the use or the misuse of executive power over the last eight months, 18 months, I should say? Well, thank you. Um, Again, thank you for having me again. So something I was thinking about when I was listening to you in, in the first part of the show is this idea that we think 
typically of emergencies as uh, phenomena that, you know, have a beginning and an end. We very much think of them as acute problems. So there's an acute phase which requires extraordinary measures, but that is understood as somehow being inherently limited in time. And because of that, we grant, we're willing as, you know, democracies to grant extraordinary powers to executives for the purpose of dealing with that particular acute phase of um, a problem, which, you know, in this case, it's a human biosecurity emergency. Now, the issue is we're not really trained to think of emergencies as very prolonged affairs. So we're now 18 months into the pandemic, and the last uh, declaration of uh, biosecurity, human biosecurity emergency under the Biosecurity Act commenced on the 11th of June for a period of three months, and they've been uh, renewed every three months since the start of the pandemic. Now, what I think is really problematic is that you're quite right that in a way the granting powers to the granting extraordinary powers to the executive is what has allowed the response uh, from a public health perspective to be so successful from the start because we have to admit that you know looking at what has, what has happened in in other countries in other democracies in particular the Australian response has been particularly successful in curtailing the containing the spread of the disease. The problem, however, is that you know the reason why we like democracies as opposed to monarchies is that concentrating powers, executive powers in particular, can be particularly effective. But at some point, what you give up in the long term starts you know it comes back and bites you in the back, so to speak. And at this stage, we, we, I think we've entered in a phase where there is a lot of fatigue because lockdowns aren't easy. They're the cost, uh, financial and in terms of well-being of these measures, lockdowns, border closures, etc., is not evenly distributed. And that's the point in time where, you know, countries that are based on the rule of law will have avenues of accountability where you can challenge the executive. But the problem under an emergency is that there is a tendency to just defer to what the executive says because we need, we, there is that need for effective and quick response. So we're in a little bit of a loop at the moment where there is no clear way out because the, the disease is still very much around and the risk of it coming in is very much uh, concrete as we see in New South Wales. So there is no clear avenue out of the emergency, but on the other hand, we're starting to feel the fact that we have given up a number of instruments of accountability for government. And I think that is particularly, that, 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 that does have a significant impact on the way, um, you know, populations feel in the democracy. So I don't know can that I, I would... Just, okay, oh, sorry, <laughs> so, so sorry, Willie. Can I just follow up just immediately, though, with one, with one quick question? Yes. Uh, Marco, both... Queensland, where I am, Western Australia, where you are, have had state elections under the conditions of a pandemic. Both of our states have taken remarkably similar approaches to snapping into lockdown very, very quickly and quite regularly. 
uh, with relatively few cases at play within the community. Uh, uh, we've also, there's a sim- remarkably similar approach to closing borders. And both uh, of our state premiers have been reelected with thumping majorities. I guess my, my question is, to what extent do those two strictly electoral reaffirmations of the approach taken by our two state premiers, to what extent can they then be regarded as something like a public affirmation of the use and the continuing use of executive powers? Oh, well, there's no doubt that, um, well, I mean, the, the result in WA was extraordinary. Um, and there is no doubt that they, these were public affirmations. But I would, say, I would say two things, though. The first is that democracies are not just about electing governments once a term. Um, holding government accountable is something uh, a bit more complex than that. And what I think, which is not necessarily the case when it comes to state governments, um, there's been less challenges. Although, for example, WA, the, the interstate border closure, the hard border closure that was imposed by WA was challenged with the federal court, and the federal court said, and then, sorry, the, the high court, and the high court said, no, no, this is entirely uh, acceptable and proportionate in the circumstances. There is a history of court's deference to executive powers in uh, situations of emergency, you know, from the world wars on, onwards. But I think my, what I'm trying to get to is that there, is, there has been certainly a strong majoritarian um, support in our states in particular, which has been relatively less affected. I don't know what the social mood would be if we had gone through uh, what Melbourne has gone through, what uh, New, uh, Sydney and New South Wales are going through now. I don't know. What, but I think what is starting to become apparent now, 18 months on, is that this isn't over. And it, not only it's not over, but at a drop of a hat, it can actually uh, put you into lockdown for, and you might have to snap lockdown for five days, or it might be two weeks. So I think that that feeling of uncertainty that w- sort of, uh, allowed executives to make strong decisions for a significant period of time uh, with strong popular support, I think it was really linked to this idea that we, you know, we accept the notion of emergency as something that has, you know, is linked to an acute phase of a problem. But then all those democratic, all those essential elements of a democratic society, such as, you know, the ability to challenge government, the ability to review decisions, the ability to access documents, you know, the common, you you were talking about the national cabinet, no one can access the documents of the national cabinet. Now, I think all of that is starting to compound. It's not necessarily at the same level in every state. But my point is, Democracies aren't just about electing governments, because they're not just about protecting the majority. I personally would say that uh, what, what really characterizes a democracy is its ability to protect the minorities. And, and I think it, we, we are in a little bit of a, of a transition uh, right now. And, but it's not clear, but because the underlying problem, which is the human biosecurity emergency, is still there, we don't really, we don't really have a clear pathway out. And that's a problem, I think, of 
weak political leadership, but that's a different uh, it's a different question, which we could, you know, uh, we can talk about that too, if you want. But see, Marco, I, I see this slightly differently. I, I don't see a lack of scrutiny on governments being possible. Um, I see what you're saying about the, the inability to access certain documents that might allow the sort of, you know, old school journalistic scrutiny that we otherwise have. But I also wonder sometimes how important and how effective that stuff is in moving public opinion or it, what I see actually is a, a, a population or a series of populations across the country that depending on where you are, are in some, some cases unfairly criticising and scrutinising actions of governments because it refuses to accept the sort of um, devilishly complex and inevitably tragic dimensions to the decisions that they simply have to make and a growing disquiet and impatience, which itself is born of a kind of scrutiny, right? So, so every time a government goes into lockdown, um, especially what we saw in Victoria and what we're seeing in New South Wales now, a whole lot of responses burst forth. And a good portion of those responses will be unreasoned and unreasonable uh, in the circumstances. The federal government is, I think, getting bashed every day from other forms, uh, other levels of government that are able to apply a kind of scrutiny to them, especially across party lines, sometimes even within party lines, um, over things like what's happening with hotel quarantine and the vaccine rollout, over payments to people, the populations who are lockdown workers and businesses and so on. I feel like the, the culture of accountability, certainly the culture of complaint, if you want to say that's in some way related, that's alive and well. What, what I don't think we have is a culture of acceptance that bad things will happen. And so I, I see this, you know, in spite of everyone's best efforts. This is not in any way um, a call for less scrutiny, but I think it's a call for better and more sober reflection and analysis of the situation that we actually have in front of us. So this plays out in a situation like, um, say, the AstraZeneca vaccine question. Should Australia be using... We can make it. We've got heaps of it. We've got as much of it as we want, really. Um, we could just go full steam ahead and try to get our vaccine rollout done that way. But we will not do it because there is a one, one in a million or perhaps one in two million chance of someone dying of a blood clot. And then you saw the reaction from the Queensland government when the Prime Minister made a statement that I think when you read Atagi's advice is uncontroversial. It's actually exactly what Atagi had already said in its advice, which was, if you want to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, then you need to give your informed consent, go talk to your GP about it, right? And you saw Queensland's response, which was, what if an 18-year-old dies? This would be a total disaster. Right? And it would be a tragedy for that person, but that stems, and for their family and friends, but that, that attitude stems from a refusal to accept really any risk. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not here saying the advice on AstraZeneca should be different, or so, so yeah, should necessarily be different or, or whatever. That's not my call to make. I don't have that expertise. But what I'm interested in is the political psychology at play here. And that's what brings me back to this sense of entitlement that I spoke about before. It feels like we're becoming endlessly frustrated in Australia because we are looking at the pandemic and just expecting that we should be bearing 
zero cost or that bad things simply shouldn't happen rather than understanding that whatever lever we pull, bad things are going to happen. We're in a situation of tragic choices and it's a matter of figuring out which bad things we are genuinely prepared to wear. And I wonder if we framed the conversation that way, how different that conversation would be. I want you to respond, but I have to do the reset thing before I let you do that, if that's okay, Marco. Um, this, this is The Minefield, if you've just joined us. Well, Ed Ali's my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Marco Rizzi is Senior Lecturer in the Law School of the University of Western Australia, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. All right, Marco, go. Well, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, two things here. First, in terms of scrutiny, I completely agree that in terms of uh, what we would call political communication, so people, you say, you know, bashing the federal government, either on the media or um, the bickering between states and between states and government, there, there's a whole lot of that. What, what is considerably missing, however, are um, opportunities to actually challenge decisions. And I mentioned the, the, the India travel pause when we were talking about vaccine incentives uh, last time. So the India travel pause was the period of time in which the federal government said anyone coming back who's been in India for the past 14 days cannot come back to Australia. If they do, they risk uh, up to five years uh, in jail and a considerable and, and a significant fine. So that was challenged, and the challenge failed because it was considered the measure was considered proportionate. But what I think was interesting there is that the council that represented the, the Australian government in the federal court said, "Look, the Biosecurity Act as, acts as a legislative bulldozer." And I think that is, a very, that is a very fitting metaphor, because I think that what is really missing here is we, we can talk about it. We can, you know, um, we, we can bash governments, we can do whatever, but we can't do anything else. So, and that is a step back from how democracies based on the rule of law normally work. Yeah. And, and so I think that, that would be my response to your first point, that, yes, I agree that in terms of scrutiny, the, the, the loud kind of scrutiny, yes, there's, been, there, there's a ton of that. But in terms of the more sophisticated and, and substantial and really level of scrutiny, yes, oh, exactly. Yeah. So the checks and balances, I think, there's not, there's not enough balances at the moment. So that's one side. Now, the other side, which uh, touches upon the, you, what you were talking, what you were defining the sense of entitlement, now, that, that, I think that is a huge issue. And it is a huge issue because it puts together a number of elements that should be kept separate or should be uh, not, not kept separate, but should be appreciated as different and discrete and kind of runs them all together. So the Atagi advice on AstraZeneca is, is, a good, is a very good example. So Atagi gave advice on the basis of a, an appreciation of the data in a context of low COVID. You, you've, you've said that earlier on. Mm. 
So the, the risk of someone under 50 getting uh, a blood clot from the vaccine, from the AstraZeneca vaccine, is about three on 100,000. The risk of dying of it is one in a million, uh, more or less. So, okay, in a context in which we've managed to limit the spread of the virus, we say we prefer people under 50, under 40 in particular, to have the Pfizer vaccine. Now, what is not always clear is that that is a judgment. That's, that's a value judgment, right? Mm. So the, uh, Atagi, based on the facts, the facts are the, the figures I, I, I gave you a moment ago, they say, okay, well, we, we prefer people to take the Pfizer vaccine. Now, the facts remains, remain the same. Of course, as more statistics come in, they might be slightly adjusted, but fundamentally that's, that's the science or the lab science, if you want, of, uh, of, of Atagi's advice. The other component, which is what we, would, what we prefer you to do, that is a judgment and that is context dependent. So that, this particular nuance has been completely lost, I think, in the way in which executives have communicated with populations. Because most of the decisions, whether it's uh, the, on, on the vaccine rollout or on, or on borders, etc., you always hear we're acting on the basis of uh, health advice. Okay? The, the experts are telling us to do that. No, the experts are not telling you to do X, Y, and Z. The experts are telling you these are the facts we believe that, um, for example, with AstraZeneca, the risk of someone under 40 getting a blood clot in a context where there's little virus circulation outweighs the benefits of that person taking the vaccine. That's what we believe. Mm. Um, Which is a political call in the end, isn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. So the because problem. What, what is are the that benefits the, of lots of people taking the vaccine? The benefits could be you open three months earlier. But or... that is exactly. <laughs> but that's where what I was saying earlier about the lack of political leadership is that there is a moment in which politi informed political leadership needs to take the lead and say, okay, so what are the what are the components of this risk benefit analysis that I am going to consider in making a decision? And of course, you know, the, the, the medical professionals will, will give you uh, the type of analysis that has come from the AMA and, the, and from ATAGI, because that's, that's the way in which they think. They think in terms of patients, for example, mm. uh, running. But if you're running a country, you may want to, you know, have a more nuanced approach. So, and that has completely, that, that has been missing, I think, so mm. far in Australia. Well, that, one thing I noticed just on that is when that whole AstraZeneca go see your GP thing popped up, is when I spoke to epidemiologists, their response was quite clear. They were, yeah, go get it. Mm -hmm. It's when I spoke to people who weren't epidemiologists, so they weren't looking at these things in aggregate, they were looking at these things at the level of individual decision-making, then the response changed, right? And so this, I think, underscores the point you're making, right? That a lot of this is a question of which frame of reference is the appropriate frame of reference to choose, and that's not a mere scientific or epistemological question. That's, that's a political and value-based Absolutely. Question. But I think this is what makes the appeal to experts and to expertise the way that they are often made in the context of political communication. This is what makes it really challenging, I think, and potentially very, very, very complex, and if not 
problematic because I think one of the things that we are assuming is that everybody is receiving the same message. Everybody is getting, you know, when uh, what, when advice is given, that that communication is more or less being received. What we know, of course, is that is that methods of communication, modes of receipt, are almost infinitely dispersed, are becoming incredibly muddled. And as soon as you add fear and uncertainty and risk, especially in low COVID contexts into the equation, then that makes, you know, where the center of attention uh, ends up drifting pretty, pretty predictable. Um, so uh, I guess, you know, when, when Marco, you were talking before about weakness in political leadership, I think that's right. But what that recognizes is that what political leadership is, is the receipt of various analyses along various axes of value. So, for instance, epidemiologists are going to be tending towards total eradication uh, of the virus. Uh, Economists are going to be thinking almost in purely utilitarian terms and therefore are going to be perhaps more prepared to countenance the prospect of an increased death rate. Uh, And politicians will be trying to manage and negotiate risk, especially when that risk butts up against the prospect of state or federal election. Um, I guess my my question is, to what extent, if, if political communication needs to draw these things together, make rational evaluations that hold these things and not just fall back on the advice of experts, quote-unquote, but also place a degree of choice and trust in the hands of the public, to what extent does that then run the further risk of muddying the the, the mechanisms of communication? I mean, it seems like the tendency of political communication is to try to be as unequivocal as possible to try to be completely, uh, you know, to run the risk if there is a risk of overpromising rather than of warning of too much risk. Um, to, to what extent does trying to do what com- political communication should do, which is to balance these various challenges, these axes of value, to what extent does that then make the mode of communication itself perhaps too dispersed, too, too perhaps unsuited to the situation of emergency? <laughs> That's a very easy question. Um, so I'm, I'm not necessarily an expert in political communication, but I am. I do study response, governmental responses to risk. So what I am finding, and that answers your well, partially answers your question, maybe, is that without engaging too much in what political communication should do, which is is an impossible job in this situation, I think. But if we go back to the framework in which we're operating, we are in this position in which we have effectively outsourced every decision-making power to the executives. Executives are effectively relying on uh, technical expertise and presenting it as, you know, unquestionable evidence for what are really political choices. Um, And in the midst of all this, you have party disputes. You know, I was was talking to Scott before this uh, episode. One thing that I find particularly concerning in the current situation is that there are political alignments in the current disputes that we're seeing. So the states that have demanded 
slashing of international arrivals and the ones that you know uh, mm. are on lockdown, etc. They're all labor governments. Uh, then uh, you have South Australia that has just uh, agreed to trial a method of quarantining ret uh, returning travelers at home. Uh, that's a liberal government. New South Wales liberal government gets the aid uh, in no time, whereas Victoria didn't. So I think the mix of all these things, this, this, this basically very substantive uh, outsourcing of uh, unchecked powers to the executives, reliance on, uh, on technical advice, uh, but really for political purposes, and um, a sort of structural friction between the federal and state level and state, and, and state between states. Like, you put all this together, and, and it becomes really, really difficult, I think, to, uh, in the long term, achieve uh, sustainable goals. And so political communications is obviously a problem because you hear, uh, you hear uh, Scott Morrison saying, we're going to establish an indemnity scheme, and so anyone who wants the AstraZeneca vaccine should go get it. Uh, the day after, or the very same day, I don't remember, you have Dr. Young from Queensland who says, I don't want an 18-year-old girl dying. It's very confusing. <laughs> it's a very confusing environment. And I think part of the problem is, you know, there, there is an aspect that is strictly uh, linked to communication, but there is one that I think is a bit more profound, and that, that has to do with the institutional setting, which is what we were talking about earlier, mm. that, that, that lends itself to this particular type of uh, mm. situation, particularly in a context in which emergencies can go on, in which we conceive of emergency powers as something that in theory uh, ideally lasts for a, a determinate and relatively short amount of time in an acute phase. And we're just not, I don't think we're equipped to deal with an emergency that lasts for 18 months and, and, and counting. Mm. Which pandemics uh, often do. That's the mm. thing. That, I mean, in history, they last decades that can happen. Um, yep. Marco, we are unfortunately out of time, so I'm, I'm going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. But look, on your track record, we'll probably have you back in a couple of weeks anyway, so we'll just pick <laughs> up on from where we left. Uh, Marco Rizzi is Senior Lecturer in the Law School at the University of Western Australia, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're at an end. I fear we'll be talking about this again, though, one day. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.